and welcome to the Narrow Road Podcast, a place to share the journey of walking with God on the narrow road that leads to life. I hope that you find rest and encouragement here, but above all, the awareness that you're not alone on the way. Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Narrow Road Podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Bowyer, and it is my pleasure to be back with you for another episode. Today we are continuing in Luke chapter 5. We're going to capture the last one-third of that chapter, and then we're going to charge into Luke chapter 6. It's another very long chapter, so we're not going to read the whole entire thing. We're going to read probably roughly half of it. Um... Because it's pretty much all about Jesus sorting out the rest of his disciples, finding each and every one of the men who would follow him and learn from him and then on their backs ultimately build the church. So that's what we're going to see and hopefully there's lots of little bits of wisdom and little treasures inside of these scriptures. And then the rest of Luke chapter 6 is going to be the Beatitudes, which obviously is coming from the Sermon on the Mount. So it's kind of interesting seeing how Matthew and Luke tell the same story from different vantage points and in kind of different orders and what each of them choose to share and what they leave out and how they kind of fill in the gaps for one another. So um, we are going to leave that section, though, on the Beatitudes for tomorrow's episode and we're just going to finish out how he sort of rounds out his team of mighty men in his quest to begin ministry. So let's go ahead and dive into the last third of Luke chapter 5 and then get into Luke chapter 6 together and see what we come come to the knowledge of. Let's go. Okay, so we are in Luke chapter 5, and of course I'm reading from the Amplified Bible, and we're going to start in Luke chapter 5, verse 27. So it's going to say, after this, Jesus went out, but of course the after this that we're talking about is after Jesus had um, healed the paralytic man whose friends had lowered him down from the roof of a house to get him to Jesus. And all the scribes and Pharisees were all worked up because he forgave the man's sins and then healed him. And they were like upset that he forgave a man's sins. So that is the after this that we are reading from. Okay, so Luke chapter 5 verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi, or also known as Matthew, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me as my disciple, accepting me as your master and teacher and walking the same path of life that I walk. And Matthew left everything behind and got up and began to follow Jesus as his disciple. Levi, or Matthew, gave a great banquet for him at his house, and there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were reclining at the table with them. The Pharisees and their scribes, seeing those with whom Jesus was associating, began murmuring in discontent to his disciples, asking, Why are you eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners, including non-observant Jews? And Jesus replied to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, 
but only those who are sick. I did not come to call the self-proclaimed righteous, who see no need to repent, but sinners to repentance, to change their old ways of thinking, to turn from sin, and to seek God and his righteousness. Then they said to him, The disciples of John the Baptist often practice fasting and offer prayers of special petition, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. Jesus said to them, Can you make the wedding guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the days for mourning will come when the bridegroom is forcefully taken away from them. They will fast in those days. Then he also told them a parable. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old one. Otherwise, he will both tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new fermenting wine will expand and burst the skins, and it will be spilled out, and the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine wishes for new, for he says the old is fine. On to chapter 6. One Sabbath, while Jesus was passing through fields of standing grain, it happened that his disciples were picking the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands, and eating them. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus replied to them, Have you not even read in the scriptures what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he went into the house of God and took and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests alone, and how he also gave it to the men who were with him. Jesus was then saying to them, The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. On another, on another Sabbath he went into the synagogue and taught, and a man was present whose right hand was withered. The scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely with malicious intent to see if he would actually heal someone on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he was aware of their thoughts and he said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. So the man got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you directly, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save a life or to destroy it? After looking around at them all, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he did, and his hand was fully restored. But the scribes and Pharisees were filled with senseless rage and lacked spiritual insight and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Now at this time, Jesus went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. When day came, he called his disciples and selected twelve of them, who he also named apostles, which are special messengers, personally chosen representatives. Simon, whom he also named Peter, and his brother Andrew, and the brothers James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, also called Nathaniel, and Matthew, also known as Levi, the tax collector, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, also named Thaddeus, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor to the Lord. Then Jesus came down with them 
and stood on a level place, and there was a large crowd of his disciples and a vast multitude of people from all over, all over Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to listen to him and to be healed of their diseases. Even those who were troubled by unclean spirits or demons were being healed. All the people were trying to touch him because healing power was coming from him and healing them all. Okay, so we see a lot of cool things in in this passage of scripture that we've read, which is the last half of Luke 5 and the very beginning of Luke 6. Um, So here you see Jesus first meeting Matthew, who is a tax collector. And if you know anything about Jewish society, tax collectors were basically the worst humans in the world in their view. (laughs) They were hated. They were hated because they were doing the bidding of the oppressor. So Rome was oppressing the Jews. They had come over and pretty much taken things over and they were taxing the people to pay money back to Caesar. And so they were being oppressed against their own will by this outside force and their money, their hard-earned money was being taken from them in a system that was foreign to them for a foreign government. So the occupiers were taking from them. So a tax collector was the worst of the worst. And to be a Jew, which Matthew was, was who's choosing to be a tax collector, you're basically betraying your people like in the worst way possible. You're working for the oppressor to oppress your own people. So no one liked a good tax collector. And yet Jesus noticed him, noticed this particular tax collector named Matthew sitting at the tax booth doing his job. And he says to him, follow me. And instantly, Matthew did just as the others, and he left everything behind, got up, and followed Jesus. And to show his appreciation for the man of God seeing him, because you can only imagine the amount of hatred Matthew probably lived within, the amount of social isolation, the the pariah he felt he was around people. For this incredible man of God to see him and call him out and say, well, first of all, just to see him and to not treat him like a social outcast. That had to have just blown Matthew away. How different this one was. And no doubt, part of his gratitude and his appreciation that he wanted to show Jesus was to have a great banquet, have a great party at his house. And so that's exactly what he did. He threw a big party. Um, He included probably the only friends he had, which were other tax collectors. (laughs) And Jesus and the disciples that he had sort of uh, corralled thus far all joined him at this party. And they ate and they drank and they enjoyed themselves, to which the Pharisees, who were no doubt keeping very close tabs on every single thing Jesus was doing, um, watched him and saw who he was spending his time with. And they were very discontented by this. Who is this man that would hang out not only with tax collectors, but would basically kind of party with them? (laughs) You know, this is absolutely blowing their mind. And Jesus replies to them. When he finds out what they're asking his disciples, you know, why is your leader spending time with these people? How could he? Why would he as a holy man? Like, really? And Jesus simply confronted them, looked straight at them and says, it's not for those who are healthy that need a physician, but it's those who are sick. 
I did not come to call the self-proclaimed righteous to repentance, but to the sinners. So he's saying, like, I'm not, a, I'm not unaware <laughs> that these people aren't living, quote-unquote, the best life they could, but that's exactly why I'm here. These are the exact kind of people that the heart of my father would be drawn to. Not the self-proclaimed righteous. I'm going to go to the ones who absolutely know they're not righteous. So it was, it was very matter-of-fact for Jesus. But then they said to him, well, the disciples of John the Baptist, because John the Baptist did have disciples, he had been starting his ministry in, in varying degrees before Jesus came along. So he had men that had started following him around. And it was quite common in that time. If you were a, a Pharisee, if you were a leader, if you were a self-proclaimed holy person, someone who was leading and teaching people in the ways of God, it, it wasn't uncommon for other men to follow you, follow your ministry, learn from you and support and serve what you were doing to take the message further. So it wasn't uncommon. So Jesus, even having his disciples, creating his little team of disciples at that time, wasn't unheard of. It wasn't shocking to them. What was shocking to them was how how he ministered, how he did what he did, because it was so different. And so, of course, they say to him, well, the disciples of John the Baptist often practice fasting and they offer prayers, but your Pharisees, or excuse me, your disciples eat and drink. <laughs> so this is like really, really, really throwing them off, to which Jesus says, can you make the wedding guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But days from morning will come when the bridegroom is forcefully taken away from them. They will fast in those days. And then he gave them the parable of no one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old one. Otherwise, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And then no one will put new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the fermenting wine will expand and burst the wineskins and it will be spilled out and the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. So I looked up a commentary on this because, of course, there's just some basic truth we could extract from that on face value. But I wanted to explain these parables, how he is correlating that to the whole, this is why my disciples eat and drink. This is why we don't just fast and we don't just suffer. It was really constant back in those days that the Pharisees would fast all the time. Specifically, I think they said it was like Mondays and Thursdays or Tuesdays and Thursdays of each week. And they would put ash on their face and make their faces look really pale. And they would walk around so everyone knew that they were fasting. It was just another exercise in self-righteousness. It was a way to be seen as like, look at us and our holiness. You know, we're, we're not eating any food. We're really holy men. And they would do a lot of fasting and they would do a lot of ritualistic prayer. And that was sort of a statement to everyone else that, in essence, we're better than you. <laughs> we're holier than you. Like, look how ardent and devoted we are spiritually. And so again, Jesus is not doing that. His men are not fasting. They are not suffering in that way. And they are not acting in any prescribed religious ritualistic manner, which was very common in all the world's religions at that time and still today, that there is a certain way you practice religion. And Jesus was absolutely not going to do it that way. And so I want to read these brief commentaries that kind of tear apart these little parables real quick so that you have more than just my interpretation of them. This is coming out of the Forerunner Commentary. And Martin G. Collins, Collins is the one speaking here. And he's saying, 
this in regards to Luke chapter 5, verses 33 through 39, the two different parables. The first one he's talking about um, is the lack of fasting. So it says, The bridegroom's friends would not think of fasting when he was with them. For them it was a time of festivity and rejoicing. Mourning was not appropriate. When the bridegroom left them, their festivities would end, and the proper time for fasting and sorrow would begin. When Christ the bridegroom was with his disciples, it was a time for joy. Expressing grief by fasting would have been inappropriate at that time. In addition, since Jesus was with them, they had no need to draw closer to him through fasting. After Christ died, the disciples fasted again when appropriate. Then when we talk about the wine, it says the new wine represents the inner aspects of the Christian life, and the new cloth pictures outward conduct and conversation. A person's behavior reflects his commitment, seen in the illustration of attaching new cloth to old clothing. The old clothing represents our sinful, selfish life. It cannot be mended, but must be replaced. The new cloth is a righteous life. The Pharisees' ritual fasting was an old garment for which a new piece of cloth was useless. It is untenable to attach Christ's doctrine to the old corrupt doctrines of the world's religions. The righteous system Christ came to establish cannot be forced into an old system. To attempt to force his teachings into the ways of Judaism, Protestantism, Catholicism, or any other of this world's religions causes confusion. Christ is warning against syncretism of beliefs. It simply does not work. Our Savior teaches that life cannot be a mixture of two opposite principles. We cannot serve two masters. We cannot trust in our own works for salvation in Christ, nor follow the world and God. His new way must completely replace our old worldly ways so that we walk in newness of life. Then we see, when we get into Luke chapter 6, we see that Jesus is passing through these fields that have grain, plucks, um, heads of grain standing up in the fields, and his disciples were just sort of haphazardly walking through, picking the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands, and eating them. And the Pharisees, of course, keeping Jesus and his men under watchful eye, said, Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus says, Have you not even read in the scriptures what David did? So here he is, he's going to the word of God. <laughs> And he's talking about this particular story when David was very, very hungry and he went into the temple where the consecrated bread was, which was the bread that represents the body of Christ or the body. And it was all these like ritualistic foods that were there that only the priests could eat. And it was more sort of for symbolism and, and metaphor. It was it was these pieces of bread were quite iconic and David just goes in and helps himself to eating it because he was so hungry <laughs> and even gave it to his men. And so he's saying like, hang on, the, this precedent of, of plucking a bit of weed and eating what I should need or, or doing some work on the Sabbath, it's not unheard of guys. Like it's, it's okay. And then he says, the son of man is Lord even on the Sabbath. So he's, he's, again, this is this whole new way. I'm trying to show you a new way. You're so attached to tradition. You're so attached to all these rules and this, this system of restriction that you know so well. And I'm telling you, as the son of man, 
I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, which means I kind of make the rules here. <laughs> and then he goes on another Sabbath, on another Sabbath, so this was another day. Um, and he went into the synagogue and taught, and a man was present whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and Pharisees were watching him closely with malicious intent to see if he would actually heal someone on the Sabbath. Because again, the rules of the Sabbath are you literally do no work. Nothing that even remotely looks like work. Which plucking the heads of grain could even look like a form of work. It could look like a form of harvesting. Healing someone, shockingly, in their interpretation, could be seen as a form of work. Of doing the work of ministry on a day that it was supposed to be exclusively for rest. And Jesus was trying to teach them all along that the Sabbath was given for man, not man for the Sabbath. Meaning God gave them a day of rest that's just meant to be enjoyed. It's just a day where you don't need to feel like I have to work seven days a week. It was to be enjoyed. It wasn't meant to be turned into this, this hard and fast religious rule that you can do nothing And if you do anything that even resembles work, you're in sin and you need to be prosecuted. So Jesus is trying to teach them the point of of things on a deeper level rather than on this very um, religious, rules-based perspective. So, of course, they were watching him intently to see if he would actually heal someone on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he was aware of their thoughts, and he said to the man with the weathered hand, Get up and come forward. So he got up and stood there. And then Jesus said to them, and now he's looking directly at the Pharisees, because he already knows what they're thinking, what they're ready to begin accusing him of. You're doing work. You're not supposed to do that on the Sabbath. He says, I ask you directly, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil? To save a life or to destroy it? After looking around at all of them, He said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he did, and his hand was fully restored. But the scribes and the Pharisees were filled with senseless rage, note that word senseless, (laughs) and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. So at this point, he's absolutely throwing them over the edge. (laughs) They, They just cannot deal with the fact that he would do this thing that he absolutely can't do. They were so obsessed with rules, and let's be honest, they were so threatened by him that he seemed to understand the scriptures as they were meant to be uh, meant to be understood and he was far more popular than them he was incredibly successful and he was kind <laughs> he says is it lawful to do good on the sabbath or to do evil and he knows that to heal this man's hand is to do good to heal this man's hand is to give him his life back Who knows what had been taken from him because he had a withered, unusable hand. He knew that this is a good thing to do. It is not about work. It is not about breaking a rule. It is not about a lack of holiness. It was to do the right thing if the right thing was available to him to do. And it absolutely was. And so he looked at them. He asked them this question. And then he looked right back at the man and said, give me your hand. (laughs) Stretch it out. And he did. He stretched it out. He was fully healed. Gosh, Jesus was so, (laughs) he was so confrontational. I mean, he just did not even care what these men were going to think about him. And he was not afraid. He was no way, shape, or form at any point cowering from their thoughts or their judgments. Then he goes on and it lists off all the disciples that he has 
sort of pulled into the fold at this point. So he doesn't spend the time, Luke, the writer, doesn't spend the time going through how he meets each and every one of them. He just kind of rounds it out with, and these are all the disciples he has now. So he's got Simon and Peter, Andrew and the brothers James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who is the zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who would later become a traitor to them. Then it says, Jesus came down with them, stood on a level place, and there was a large crowd of his disciples and a vast multitude of people from all over Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal regions, and he had, who had come to listen to him and to be healed of their diseases. Even those who were troubled by demons were being healed, and all the people were trying to touch him because healing power was coming from him and healing them all. Then we didn't read this part, but he goes into the Beatitudes, which leads me to believe that what he's setting up here is the Sermon on the Mount that we also see in Matthew chapter 5. So we're just kind of like flipping between different chapters here. Luke chapter 6 is setting up the Sermon on the Mount and this this incredible sermon that Jesus gives. And Matthew chapter 5 gives that, uh, gives that sermon. So you again see where there's a bit of overlap. I know yesterday... In Luke chapter 5, we were reading about him speaking to a large crowd, and he goes out in the boat, and I, and I asked on the podcast if that was the day he was giving the Sermon on the Mount, but clearly it wasn't. It was later on in the story that this took place, so just correcting that. Now I know when the Sermon on the Mount was, um, but yeah, what an interesting series of stories as we're getting further. We're just seeing Jesus more and more just provoking <laughs> provoking the um, scribes and the Pharisees, the holy men of this day and hour. It's just crazy to me when, when it all gets said and done that these men who he is clearly provoking at different times, or I think really in truth, I don't know that he's actively trying to provoke so much as he's trying to teach. He's trying to set them free from their own religious principles, their own restricted thinking. He's trying to set them free. But they're not seeing it that way. They're taking it as a personal attack on their own ego, on their lifestyle, on their clout socially. And and they're just, they're taking deep offense. And to know that this man, who they know in their heart of hearts, isn't doing anything wrong. He's actually just living at a higher standard that they could all live at. They're just choosing not to. That that rage towards him, that 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 brokenness, that attack on their ego could drive them to the place of trying to kill him. And ultimately, it does get to that point and they do succeed in killing him. It's, it's just wild. It's wild to me that men could be so offended by another man who's essentially just making them look bad. <laughs> you know, he's just calling them out. He's calling them out and they're, they're living inside of like this really toxic comparison and instead of saying, you know what, he makes me want to be better. I want to be better. I want to follow him. I want to learn from him. They just double down in their hatred and their judgment against him to the point of taking his life. I mean, we've already read in, the, in a chapter, two chapters ago, where they've already tried to throw him off a cliff. And here they're just watching him with malicious intent, just looking for more reasons why they could justify killing him. It just took them no time at all to be so threatened by Jesus that the only thing they can think of is how can we get rid of this man? That's it. There was no alternative. There was no how can we become his friend? How can we learn from him? How can we support him? How can we team up? It was like, no, he's just the enemy. He makes us look bad. He makes us look small. 
we need to get rid of them. That's the answer to this problem. And I, I, it just makes me think about King David before he was king and Saul's hatred, his irrational hatred for David, because David was X number of years his junior, but he was a powerful warrior, right? He was beloved. And instead of seeing David as an ally, he was making his military win battles. He was making Saul look better for, you know, what a great leader and a king Saul was to have someone like David on his team to to do these great exploits for the for the nation of Israel. Instead of seeing him as an ally to unite with, he just was overwhelmed by his own sense of insecurity and he had to kill him. And he tried and he tried and he tried and he tried to kill David. He was ultimately unsuccessful, but he tried to kill him so many times because he couldn't take another man, quote unquote, looking better than him. Man, it's real sad. It's real, real sad, the fragility here. (laughs) But Jesus knew all along it was going to go that way. So I think that that was partly why he didn't really mince words and he didn't hold back and he didn't sort of try to make friends with the Pharisees. He came to do a mission and they weren't going to get in the way of that mission. And he didn't really have time to worry about their fragile egos or how he could approach them in a more diplomatic way. It was very much, I'm here for a short period of time. I need to do my father's work and I need to do it efficiently. And you're, I'm not going to cower to you or work around you to, um, to placate both sides. I'm just here to do what I'm going to do. If you don't like it, get out of my way. <laughs> and... That is a level of boldness and bravery that I wish we had more of in the world. But he is such an incredible leader. Such an incredible leader. So now we're going to read the Beatitudes tomorrow. We're going to get into the Sermon on the Mount and hear some powerful teachings. And you'll notice Jesus speaks a lot differently to people who are hungry and interested than he speaks to the Pharisees who are cold and different and aggressively against him. Very different um, teachings, very different spirit on the words. So I I look forward to even seeing those sides of Jesus. And um, we'll probably go a little bit back and forth into Matthew as well to get some additional context for this sermon since it is one of the most profound um, teachings of Jesus that we have in depth in the Bible. So very looking forward to that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Narrow Road Podcast. And as always, I'll be back with you tomorrow for another episode. So stick with me, come back, and let's keep going in this journey on Jesus's life. Thanks for listening, and bye-bye.